Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Do we really need universities and colleges anymore? Have they become too politicized? Many conservatives have started to write off American academia. They contend that it is so irredeemably, irretrievably woke that the best that those on the right can hope for is to try to advance their ideas and live according to their principles outside it. Other conservatives still in academia just keep their heads down and try to maintain some kind of conservative presence within it, get their work done, and do their best for their students. What does the increasing dominance of the left liberal worldview in academe have on the intellectual development of college students, and what are the consequences for conservative academics and for American society at large? Or are things really that bad for academics who do not swear fealty to left liberal values? Is there still a healthy respect on college campuses for fundamentals, such as the cultivation of reason and respect for the notion of reasonableness? Is reasonableness even something worth salvaging? In his 2021 book, Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education, Jonathan Marks examines the deleterious effects of the left-leaning sociocultural homogenization of American higher education. He calls upon college instructors to renew their commitment to inculcating in their students the ability to reason for themselves and to reason with others. He argues that a healthy democracy requires a strong base of liberally educated people given that reason is the best way to solve economic and political problems and simply to lead fulfilling lives. Marx identifies as a conservative, and yet he takes issue with conservatives and populists who are giving up on American higher education as nothing more than a vast leftist indoctrination mill. He disputes this despairing defeatist position of the right when it comes to academia, while presenting a clear-eyed view of how the left can indeed frequently politicize scholarship. Marx provides a case study of this trend vis-a-vis the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, BDFs movement against the state of Israel. Jonathan Marx makes a passionate case for the value of liberal education and lays out clearly what that consists of and is important for those who consider themselves liberals and for those who very much don't. This book should be read by academics, college students, parents about to send their children off to college, and anyone who cares about where society shaping new ideas are developed and timeless ones are passed along to new generations. And for millions of Americans, colleges are still where all of this occurs. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with Jonathan Marks, author of the 2021 book, Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. Thank you for joining us today, Jonathan. Thank you for having me, Hope. I'm excited to have you because I've seen you on Twitter. I've seen, I've listened to various podcasts, interviews with you about the book and, and read reviews of it. It's getting quite a bit of attention and I'm, I'm pleased to have you. I'd well, like... not yet overexposed. Oh. So this will get it just right. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. You don't want to be overexposed because that, that's, that's not desirable either. So I'd like to start off by asking you what motivated you to write the book. In many ways, you seem to argue that there are twin crises. A, that conservatives seem to have fallen into a self-defeating defeatism, which I mentioned, and disdain even for higher education these days, arguing that it has become little more than little more than a source of signature for w- wokesters, a source of signatures for, in other words, they just feed off it. 
and B, that the students are not being taught how to reason or becoming little more than repeaters of slogans they learn in college. For example, be the change, from the, which they get from their leftist professors. Or that academia is simply, be, is simply populated by jaded professors or those overly focused, conversely, on those overly focused on preparing students for the job market. So you've got jaded professors who aren't really interested in education at all, and those who are educa- interested in education simply for, for, for vocational training. Could you please tell us what led to this book? What What is its thrust? Well, uh, I think for, for a lot of writers, maybe this is not the best motive in the world, but uh, uh, one of my uh, colleagues uh, once told me that he has trouble writing without without an anime. <laughs> so uh, the book the book uh, stems in I'm part sorry, with, from... Without, without doing what? Without an anime. Needs oh, an, an anime. anime. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So I've, I've got at least a few different kinds of frustrations that I was working out um, in writing. Um, That's ironic, given well, that the book is about reasonableness and frustration is, is, is often is resulting from frustration with the unreasonableness of others. So that makes sense. Yeah. So three, three things. The, the first is um, the one that you mentioned, frustration with colleagues of mine, um, and uh, across the country who don't worry enough that they're doing damage to the reputations and missions of their institutions by uh, too easily yoking them um, to left liberal causes. Um, So that's one. Another one you mentioned, frustration with um, uh, fellow conservatives who you know, a, a critique of universities is A, warranted, and B, not new. Um, you can go back to um, William Buckley's God and Man at Yale. So we're, we're going back to the 50s and even before that to uh, find great frustration among conservatives about universities. But I think there's, there's now even less of a reform temperament um, than there once was and more of an inclination, as um, you said in your introduction, to... Um, uh, to give up and in some way uh, move on, um, to burn the thing down and see what emerges out of the ashes. And then um, a frustration even with defenders of liberal education, who it seems to me run up uh, a lot of different kinds of, of banners. Um, so, you know, we, we, we've got skills and uh, We'll get you jobs. These are not bad things to um, have, of course, but um, yeah, we'll help you deal with complexity. We'll help you racially repair. We'll help you be interdisciplinary. And it, it seems to me that that those justifications are uh, incoherent and uh, unpersuasive. And uh, th- that's what one hears even about those officially tasked, you might say, with defending liberal education, like the American Association of Colleges and Universities. Um, it's not all frustration. I'm grateful for the education that, that I got and uh, would like to see that mode of education continue. Um, and so I, I want to offer um, a, a picture, a, a portrait of an education that I think is uh, still worthy of preservation. Yeah, I wanted to mention that you 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 mentioned your own education. It was pretty much exclusively at the University of Chicago, from from your bachelor's degree to the, your PhD. Right? Is that was it? Was it just such a wonderful 
location that you just fell in love with with it or were you encouraged to stay i mean i mean where they said don't go jonathan stay here we can we can mold you into an even better man and uh, no, i managed to somehow hang on um <laughs> I, I'm not a real lifer, you know, the real Chicago lifers also attend the University of Chicago Lab School, which I oh. think starts in elementary school. So Is that still going? That's interesting. I believe that it still still exists. Um, John Dewey Associated, um, and I think that the University of Chicago opened me to the first time, uh, I, I think, to the idea that uh, one can find um, not only, but Chicago, I found maybe especially um, in old books, um, alternatives um, to uh, what's available at our moment. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I remember being in a class that Alan Bloom taught, I, I think I was in my junior year, maybe it was a class in, in political philosophy. Uh, and we were reading a book um, called Rousseau's A Meal, which I, I went on to uh, write about later. And there's a bit about it um, in my book, but it's um, you know the 18th century political philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It's his, his great um, work on education and a very influential um, work on education. At first, I, I, I just couldn't make heads or tales out of it, you know, and um, through reading it uh, with with Alan Bloom, uh, you know, I, I found that it spoke not just to contemporary questions, but, but it opened up um, old, enduring, fundamental questions. Um, what does it mean to be free, for example? What does it mean to um, be an educated person? What is a natural human being, what do we mean by nature, questions of that sort um, that cut across um, times and places and, and the world of exploring those questions, I think, opened up for me um, at, at the University of Chicago. It's not the only reason I, I, I stayed. Um, I had been a philosophy major at the University of Chicago, and I ended up studying at um, a graduate program called the Committee on Social Thought, which is in an interdisciplinary um, program, so quite different um, from the philosophy department, but animated at least in part by the idea that there are these questions that are both interdisciplinary, meaning that, you know, you have to follow them across um, different areas and approaches, but also really transdisciplinary. They, they were around uh, before the disciplines, as we now think of them, first emerged. Did you have any classes with Leon Cass? I never studied with uh, with Leon or Amy Cass, but um, oh, that's right. His wife was very distinguished as well. I should mention that. Yeah, my my, my spouse um, uh, Anna, she took um, uh, several classes um, with uh, with uh, uh, both one that that Leon and Amy um, co-taught on on courtship, and um, oh, that's touching. Yeah, and, and and so she was well schooled by the time we met. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had um, a very strong marriage. That's kind of touching that they would would nurture that in their students. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful class. I've used. Um, they have an anthology called Wing to Wing and Oar to Oar, which really collects writings that are pertinent to that. I've used it um, in my own teaching, but I also, you know, the the committee was certainly the kind of place where you could walk into somebody's office and chat with them about something. And one of the things that 
Leon uh, Cast taught was uh, Rousseau's Second Discourse. I ended up doing my research mostly on um, Rousseau, so he was somebody I could talk to about it. So, so I did get to know um, him, and uh, you know, he, he's been. Uh, you know, in fact, he he read the proposal that I wrote um, <laughs> for this book and was was extremely helpful and and you know helped me think about uh, how best to to make my case. I have really high regard for uh, for for Leon Cass. Well, you mentioned that you're that you're one of your fields of study is Rousseau, but in in the in the book, the main figure that you seem that plays a larger part would, was Locke. Could you discuss that? I would well, say that's that right. he's, he's, a, he's the fulcrum of the book, really. Yeah, Locke is an important figure um, in the book, and he, he was in a lot of ways um, uh, Rousseau's rival. Rousseau was responding to Locke in many ways um, when he wrote Emile. You know, J- John Locke is is maybe best known for the second treatise um, on government and considered an influence on um, American liberal political philosophy, you know, small L, not Nancy Pelosi liberalism, but liberalism with the Declaration of Independence. Um, so in a way, I got into Locke um, through the back door. I studied Rousseau first, and then I thought, well, let me look at this work called Some Thoughts Concerning Education um, that Rousseau was responding to and, you know, had in front of him when he was writing the second draft of, um, of, of Emile. And he takes a lot um, from Locke. Um, but there's a line in some thoughts concerning education, which really stuck with me. I was thinking a lot about education at the time. And um, Locke says, and this is the quotation that I start the book with, there cannot be anything so misbecoming, you know, so unbecoming. There cannot be anything so misbecoming. Anyone who pretends to be a rational creature is not to yield to plain reason and the conviction of clear arguments. And, And that was a powerful line to me, uh, because it, it seems to me that uh, our failures of reason often have to do with a failure to, to live up to that idea. So a lot of times when we do get frustrated, you said we do sometimes get frustrated with, with other people. We should probably be more frustrated with ourselves too sometimes. But um, when we kind of want to grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, be reasonable, either plaintively uh, or with annoyance, we, we don't so much mean, you know, did you forget what you learned in Logic 101? And, you know, you should really hit the books on that again and, you know, restudy the um, components of, of critical think. We mean something more like, you know, let's stop fooling around here. Let's stop puffing ourselves up. Uh, let's stop boosting our tribe. Let's stop showing off. Um, and, and, and let's see what conclusions uh, we're able to draw uh, from what we think we know. And if we don't know enough, what we think we'd need to find out um, in order to draw better conclusions. So when I talk about what it means to be reasonable, I mean, the title is Let's Be Reasonable. I, I, I have in a lot of ways that um, sort of um, uh, approach in mind. Um, you yeah, know, there's, a char- there, there, there's a characterological component to it. It, 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 it. It's not just a skill set. I mean, these skills are important, but, you know, lots of people have them, um, you know, you know, it's sort of, um, uh, you know, people who, who appear on Crossfire like shows and use these tools to get the better um, of others, uh, you know, uh, bullshitters, um, your social media 
frenemy and so on, who, um, if they think about it, seem to think of reason as a tool uh, with which to get their way or get the better of others. Yeah, I was going to say that I, w- I wonder, is it, is it, is it, a, I just wonder about, can you instill in a young person reasonableness or is it a personality trait that you either are reasonable, you have a reasonable temperament or you don't? It just, do you give them tools and, and do, or do you say to them, you may, you may have to admit to yourself that I am not an inherently reasonable person, but for my own sake and the sake of getting my points made and my principles upheld and my policy preferences implemented i need to reason and and because i i think i think it it makes it hard for me to explain to explain to if i said to a young person i want you to read this book because i want you to fly the flag of reasonableness i think it's really important that you be reasonable and that's hard to to make um a sort of dynamic exciting concept it's sort of a, a very cerebral concept you see you see what i mean or yeah, but I, I, I think that's right. And uh, you didn't you interview Zena Hitz on the show a while I did. back? I did. And, I, yeah, and by so, the way, I want to mention that I enjoyed very much on the James Madison program site. There's a panel with you, Jonathan, Joshua Katz, and Zena Hitz, and Anthony Cronman. Cronman, that's Cronman. right. Yeah, it's, it's very. I just I watched it yesterday, and that's fair. And you, you and you parse the difference between her book and your book, and John and Anthony. Cronman's book, and and you make the point with Zena's book that she's all about how it is to be important to for your own intellectual development and your own character and your own basically intellectual excitement. You make the point that you're more outward directed. It seems to me they're saying for society's sake we need to be reasonable. Is that correct? Or well, no, I, I wouldn't say that, but um, I am a little bit more comfortable with. Um at least partly, let's call them utilitarian justifications of, of education um, that, that go along with others. In other words, I think at least um, that can get you in the door. So you asked, you know, what do I like about Locke? And I, I do like Locke. I like Locke. Um, one of the things that I, I like about Locke is that, you know, he, he does say, and I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, that, you know, the kind of education he recommends is appropriate for a soul devoted to reason, right? That sounds pretty austere mm-hmm. um, in a way. And, uh, you know, he thinks of, of, of people of study and thought, so to speak, but his, his book is really directed in a lot of ways toward uh, uh, men of practice. Um, and the other kind of argument he makes is, is something like this, right? Um, uh, we see Budden part, and we know Budden part, and therefore it's no wonder that we conclude not right um, from our partial views. I think that is um, something like an exact quote. And if I might tie it to something you asked before, right? Um, you know, even it, it's not so much. I, I think that um, you know the obstacle to reason is usually you know temperamental. Um, we're cool or we're hot or something like that, right? I, I, I'm sure that sometimes happens. I'm sure there are, um, uh, you know, ki- kinds of passions to make it more or less difficult to be reasonable. But I, I think that even if you have quite a cool temperament, the and, and I think Locke thinks this too, um, the pitfalls, the ways in which you can go wrong <laughs> are, are, are quite numerous and, mm-hmm. and, and um um, so, so, you know, e- even cool-headed people can go wrong in a variety of ways. And um, one of the ways that we go wrong is that we're, we're, we're partial human beings. Um, you know, we're limited 
um, in the experience we've got. We're limited in the sciences that we study and favor, even if we're quite um, well educated. And so the danger of um, failing to be reasonable is not just that, well, it's bad for society, but, you know, it can just lead you to do quite stupid things. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's part of Locke's pitch too, right? He says that that the understanding is the last recourse that we've got, mm. right? Really in every important matter, whether it's just for you, right? Um, or whether it's about how we get along um, together. Um, but to come back for, to Zena for a moment, right? How do you make this exciting? Because I was thinking of, of her. I, I love her book, by the way, Lost mm. in, in Thought. But... Um, you know, one of her worries about the justification for reasons is just not that exciting. Right? How do you get people excited about that? And I mm. think that's a fair um, question, right? A, a fair concern. And one of the things you sort of lose in moving from Rousseau to Locke is um, is a real concern with, with eroticism, right? Which you do have in Rousseau, um, and not so much in Locke. And I never want to leave that Rousseau part aside. But um, I, I think that it's mostly done you know, v- v- via practice. I'm sorry, did you say er- eroticism? Eroticism, right? Concern with love, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, um, Rousseau does in A Meal is that a, 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 a large portion of the book is devoted to, um, you know, how do you deal with with adolescents who are sort of on, on fire um, with these passions? Uh, not super clear, um, how they're directed, right? Confusing and so on. And so how do you um, educate, you know, the kind of being who is capable of falling in love? That's a real concern um, for somebody like Rousseau. And, and Locke barely touches on it, but we do deal with you know, people um, who are capable of, and sometimes in the process of um, falling in love, they have this, this expansive um, capacity, you know, sometimes touched by works of um, literature and the imagination. That's a part of education, too. I don't really emphasize it um, in my book, but I think that, um, that um, you know, certainly that, that, that's a side um, that, that Zena Hitz touches on um, in her book as well, right? I mean, education speaks to, to people's longings, right, too, not just, um, not just their good sense, so to speak. Um, but but to come back to um, the question you raised, I, I, I think that you get people excited about it mostly um, in practice, right? In the course of um, of um, having, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, well, let's just speak of the classroom for the moment. It's mostly um, what we do in college, although I think it would be nice if this suffused um, the entire college and university in, in some ways. Um, but um, you can, in practice, right, both um, in the example, um, you know, people set, faculty members, staff members, um, and so on, um, and in how you manage a classroom, what kinds of conversations um, you uh, enable to take place or encourage, um, I think it's possible to transmit the idea, you know, one, um, that there are these important questions that we we have trouble making progress in answering 
Um, yeah, I mentioned some of them. They're not all moral questions, but these are things come, in, come to mind. What is justice, for example? What should I do with my life? Right, the Things like that, that these are questions that there's you know, some possibility of making some um, progress um, in thinking about them and that there's, there, there's joy right, in pursuing these questions um, in the company of others, right? Joy in making the progress yourself, joy in pursuing it in the, um, the, the company of others. So I think it's possible to, to, to render it a, a attractive, not only, um, you know, in the sort of um, uh, sensible, right, manner in which um, I, I was just uh, saying that, uh, that, that Locke justifies his education, but, but, but also as a source of... Um, of, 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 of excitement, um, again, and making progress uh, with respect to questions you didn't think you could make progress in imposing um, questions that maybe you couldn't even pose all that clearly to yourself before, uh, but may have been sources of um, confusion, perplexity, wonder um, for you. Um, all of these, I think, are elements of um, a successful education that are, are hard to get at. I think we, we only succeed in part in this, um, you know, even the best teachers only succeed in part in this, but I think it's something that, um, that um, you know, is, is the most worthy aspiration for, for educators. What, what would be an example of, in your own teaching career of a, of a moment that you felt that you instilled a moment of joy and delight in a student that you felt that she, she or he just said, or came to you later and said, that was so important for me. That was a, just a, a life transformative moment. Or, or do they, do they, do they ever say, wow, I didn't think, do you have moments in the classroom where that happens or do they come to you later or both or? Yeah. Well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I do teach, of course, we were just talking about the classes. I, I teach a class, um, even though I'm in the politics department here, I do sometimes teach a course called um, what is love, um, which looks at some some classic works um, like the symposium, as well as some contemporary works um, that try to get at that question, as well as different questions that surround it, other questions that arise. Once you start asking, I certainly have heard students say, you know, A, um, that this was a really important question to me, but it wasn't something I imagined one could one could think about. Mm. Right. Um, so so I, I, I give that as an example of, of a course in which any any number of students, right, not just one, um, indicated that this wasn't really something I thought, you know, could be discussed and, and thought about. Hmm. And um, and, and what, that, what was, be, that, 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 that was news to me. What would be an example of something that they hadn't thought about? They hadn't thought about aspects, a certain aspect of love or. Well, I, th I think a lot of times um, with questions like that, and that was certainly true in this class, it's not so much that they they couldn't pose the question, but that they just thought that that there was no way of um, uh, making progress and discussing it, right? I mean, you develop your view somehow or another, spontaneously or from your parents. That was the view you had, and um, uh, there was not much point um, in talking about it, you know. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, we think of love as, as fundamentally mysterious. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a romantic understanding that, that, that has some, some truth to it. That is to say that, uh, 
you know, I would be worried about somebody who thought they could articulate a 10 point case about you know, precisely <laughs> why um, they, they, they uh, love the person they love. On the other hand, if, um, you know, uh, your, your lover, beloved comes up to you and says, why do you love me? And all you have to say is, you know, I don't know. It's completely irrational, totally mysterious. Hmm. Um, that's a problem, too. Yeah. So, so it seems to me that that students quite often they're, they're interested um, in various questions about which people have different opinions, you know, kinds of questions about which reasonable people disagree. Um, but their models for how you get to know something are, you know, the rainy models we have, right? You've got um, the natural sciences, which at least on their face um, appear to offer you, you know, very clear um, answers and formulas for arriving at them that, you know, work a lot of the time um, or mathematics, right? That's the model for knowing um, that students have, right? That's what knowledge is and coming to know is and the rest is, you know, we've got a lot of opinions and, um, you know, uh, we don't know why we have them and we don't know what to do um, with people who hold different opinions. And so there's some work in trying to articulate standards of some kind um, that might help us work through um, these kinds of disagreements. Um, you know, standards um, that um, are, are applied in areas in which reasonable people um, disagree. You know, standards like um, clarity, um, do we know what we're talking about, comprehensiveness, um, uh, that just means does the argument I have cover, you know, various cases as opposed to the one case um, that I've got in front of me, um, depth, you know, am I looking at things um, uh just on the surface that I'm looking at a bunch of different phenomena that look exactly the same, but maybe if I looked at um, uh, how they come about or what motivates them, I might find that actually they're quite different. Depth, clarity, comprehensiveness. I'm taking those standards from a, a political theorist by the name of Ruth Grant, and there are others, but um, you know, I, I think the obstacle is not so much that um, students aren't interested, you know, or um, or um, uh, don't have strong opinions or relativists, but don't have the sense that it's possible to get anywhere um, or to take any pleasure <laughs> in no. getting anywhere in, in questions of, of that kind. Yeah, I was going to say that I've been reading, visiting various websites of college newspapers and apropos of love that so much of it is of, of, there's a lot of talk about sex and sexual gender identity and all that, but there isn't a lot of, of course, of course, it's probably not something that they would write about on the editorial page if they fall in love, but it just seems that so much of it is just so, um, you mentioned eroticism, it's just, I, I, there's a lot of hookup culture and a lot of celebration of promiscuity and everything, and it just seems as though there's just not a lot of, of reflection about what about love and and i'm glad that there's a, a it's ironic that it has to, it has to be in the classroom that rather than out in the wider world that, that they they find they discuss that but yeah and i i really do, do do owe that to to the casses in a lot of ways because mm -hmm. that was a question that they pursued um in the classroom and i i got got the the idea of at least um a class on on that particular subject from them, although I also um, owe it to Alan Bloom, who I've already mentioned, who wrote a wonderful book called um, Love and Friendship that captured <laughs> um, uh, you know, his teaching in many ways quite well. That's a matter of great concern 
um, to him and something he talked about um, in, in his classes. Well, given that the book is an argument to rather, it seems as though the book is addressed both to liberals to try to say to them, don't run us out of, to conservatives, don't run us out of academia because we need to have a discussion of this from all, from all aspects. And I, I think that in terms of, of, well, I was just going to say that, oh, that in, in the classroom, when you're discussing love, that a conservative would say, well, just try to discuss love. And then you'll then someone will say, "Well, you're being heteronormative," <laughs> and 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 then and so everything becomes fraught. Everything becomes politicized. Even something as basic to a young person as as what is love becomes a political minefield. Do you find that, or is it is are you or do you do you, do you try to sh- to say to the students, "We're not going to get into the politics of it. We're just going to discuss the emotion of it." Well, I'm happy to get into the politics of it, oh, right? Really? But even though I, I agree with you. Um, that, you know, politicization, you know, as you put it as a problem, that is uh, when when everything um, becomes political. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I don't mind discussing the relationship uh, between love and and politics. You know, I I think that's uh, worthy of exploration. But to to answer your first question, I think that um, I, I don't encounter a lot of that um, in my own courses. Um, but, but I, I agree that it, it's a real phenomenon and, you know, you'd be crazy to deny <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that, that it's a real phenomenon, a significant phenomenon. And, um, you know, it, it, in a way, I think though, that, um, when you say, uh, don't, don't run us out of, um, academia, that's not exactly the, the, the point I'm making. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would be very worried if there was a, a movement to run conservatives out of academia altogether. Um, but I think that the, the problem is less that very many people are actively seeking to run conservatives out of academia, mm-hmm. as that um, faculty members just, just don't care in some sense about uh, whether um, you've got conservatives in academia or not. Um, they, they make an exception to their usual rule, right? You might say that the usual rule is to assume that, um, you know, we have all of these prejudices um, of which we might not even be aware um, that narrow our scope of understanding. And so we have to do everything we can do. We have to have all these safeguards um, to guard ourselves against our prejudices. And then when you point out, you know, that um, um, there is a a great disparity um, between left liberals and conservatives, you know, just numerically starting there um, in the university, but much worse in some departments in which politics are discussed, you know, that in other um, departments, the answer is likely to be something effective. Well, um, you know, it's because conservatives, you know, they don't want to get into academia because they're more concerned about money than liberals are, Mm -hmm. you know, academia is not where the money is, or, you know, we're just so open-minded around here and, you know, conservatives, they don't like the open-mindedness so much. And, uh, so, you know, know, the argument is something to the effect of, well, yes, perhaps, you know, in some abstract way, it's a problem, but, you know, basically you don't have conservatives there because, you know, they're closed-minded and greedy. Mm. You know, yeah. and, 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 and nobody sort of stops to think that, well, maybe this reflects some stereotype that I've got um, mm-hmm. about, um, about conservatives. 
and you know, as if somehow in this lone area, you know, in which we're likely to become really passionate, right? I, I, I quote this uh, in my book, Alexander Hamilton, the first of the Federalist Papers, Defense of the Constitution, says that in any matter of great national discussion, a torrent of angry and malignant passions will be let loose. Mm. Right. So, I, I, I mean, this is an area that sort of drives us crazy, you might say, and, and, and academics, again, really mindful of even the smallest evidence of prejudice in various areas, think, well, it's OK. And, and you know, we don't need conservatives around because we're so professional, open minded mm. or something like that. And, you know, there is something to professionalism. It's powerful. Most of my colleagues I do consider um, professionals, but it just seems um, it's arrogant, Mm. Um, to think that um, that you're just going to be able to um, manage these these prejudices. Well, I think I'd like to read a passage from your book about the fact that you're you're kind of critical. You're, well, you're slightly critical of conservatives for being too passive and not not speaking up and and questioning some of the the woke slogans that are really dominating quite a few quite a few public universities. Anyway, it's for example, you say. It's easier and less controversial to assert that we live in a white supremacist culture than it is to question that assertion. It is easier and less controversial to assert that we live in a culture that endorses rape than it is to question that assertion. It's easier and less controversial to assert that we should revamp our academic programming to advance racial and gender justice than it is to question that assertion. And I thought that was really powerful because it said it's just easier to say, well, I'm not it's, it's, it's hard for the conservative to say I'm not a racist. I just think that we need to also do this rather than, I mean, for example, the, the Portland State University in Oregon, he recently said that the purpose of the university is to advance social and racial justice. And my reaction was, really? That's what the university is for? I thought it was to equip young people of, of every color to, to, to contribute to society and to be successful, fulfilled people. <laughs> it just seemed like, what, when did that become the default position and, and, and whose justice is he advancing and that kind of thing? It was just really striking that that, that, was what he, that he was redefining what a university is for without much, much say, with, with, of course, we did have the, the, the gentleman at Portland State who did resign and said that he, was, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't abide it anymore. His first name yeah. was Peter. I'm afraid I've lost his last name, but. I don't know how to pronounce it, but something like Bogassian. Bogassian, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, he resigned because he said this is this is not what uh, what a university should be. It's it's demeaning to the students. To well, he was basically saying it's suppressing discussion. Yeah, so I, I think it's extraordinary. You know, I actually did not know about that particular statement. I, I do find it extraordinary that uh, you know a college president would would state that in such a pure form. Mm. Let's put it that way. I mean, you see certainly elements of this in different statements coming out of administrations, but that, 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 that's quite extraordinary. So let me say a few words about that. Uh, the first thing I want to say is, um, you know, I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, D David French uh, wrote a column, um, I, I think he was at the National Review at the time, um, called something like Courage is the Cure for Political Correctness. And his that's argument- a, That's a good more, line. That's a good line. Yeah. And his, his argument is more or less that- um, you know, at least uh, on paper, the rules and regulations we have governing speech at um, universities are more robust as far as the extent to which there's free speech protective than they were, you know, b b back in the 90s, let's say. Um, David French was, I think, maybe the first president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which um, 
um, you know, fights for um, uh, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion, uh, you know, other sort of First Amendment protections at, at colleges and universities. And he says, well, you know, um, uh, in some ways there is, again, on paper, you know, more leeway than you've ever had. So especially if you're tenured, um, you know, speak up. <laughs> you know, and, and, and a lot of the problems we do have, um, you know, are, are have to do with self-censorship. Now, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, I, I blame conservatives for this because, you know, people don't always follow the rules. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you can find yourself, um, you know, in hot water in some places, depending on the circumstances. Um, you say the wrong thing um, on social media. But I, I understand that, that people feel those pressures, but, but I do think that there are a lot of circumstances in which, um, you know, it's possible to uh, to make your argument. Things aren't uh, um, quite as um, intolerant as um, sometimes we suppose they are. Um, so you made the point about um, the University of Oregon president saying... I'm sorry, Port- Portland, Portland State University. Oh, Portland State, yeah. yeah. yeah so so in Oregon, making the um, point that, you know, the purpose of the university is, um, is social justice. Um, or something like that. Yeah, I, um, I and, and that's, that's, that, that's been a strand of how we think of universities for, for actually a long time. Um, in my book, you know, I, I, I talk about the, um, the, the Port Huron statement in, in 1962, a statement uh, from Students for a Democratic Society, which is sort of regarded as a, a seminal document for how student activists think about campuses um, and the document says um, something effective. I'm, I'm not going to be able to get it exactly, but we, we need to um, turn universities into, you know, a, a locus of, um, of resistance um, to various um, social uh, problems uh, that we, along with progressive groups outside of the university, agree um, have to be dealt with. Um, so th- there is a fairly straightforward statement. You'll find some some uh, left wing academics saying, well, yes, I mean, the very purpose um, of the university is to fight a more or less left wing social justice fight. Mm. And yeah, at the time I wrote that, that seemed to be relatively new. Um, but then, you know, I, I came across I read recently um, a work written in the 40s, um, General Education for a Free Society. And um, that was put together by a committee at Harvard um, trying to establish um, the importance of general education. Um, And and much of it, you know, is a real defense, you might say, uh, of the life of the mind. Um, But part of it really is about mobilizing people. They actually talk about the moral equivalent of war, right? How can education be used um, to draw Right, the American people together and enable them to work for 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 great causes, you might say, um, or, or something like that. So there was that component of mobilization, right? And I think that that's always been sort of true of colleges and universities, right? They've always had, you know, th- th- this aspect of them, you know, going all the way back to the Middle Ages, where where this is sort of a retreat where people can think about things, but then there are always kings and politicians saying, you know, there are a lot of young people here who might end up being the elites, and we can really make them think the stuff that we think it's important to think. Um, so we're, we're always, I think, fighting some version of this battle. Hmm. Um, but it, it is discouraging to me because, again, the, the comment you made, well, 
you know, again, I think I think it's a really pure form of, of that kind of comment. I, th- I think there's lots of that going on um, and not enough pushback. Mm. Well, apropos of, of David French, that you, you mentioned in the book, there was a survey done that of liberals and liberal professors and conservative ones and the conservative ones reported being just as happy in their professions and not and feeling pretty secure in them as, as liberal ones. But my reaction was, well, those are, that's a generation, if they're professors, they're in their fifties or forties and they're, they're pre Trump. And I just wonder if a, if a young person with a doctorate now trying to get a job in say sociology and it's, it's written some pro Trump, you know, a, a, something that could be construed as pro Trump, he would not, that person would almost certainly not get tenure anywhere except probably a very small, highly conservative college. And, and it, but I just wonder if, and David French, speaking of David French's, I, I believe he had an essay about five years ago in the National Review, I believe it was, that he was talking about how diversity statements are being used as gatekeeping, that, that even before a person gets a job, they have to sign or, or provide bona fides or credentials that show how, how diverse they are. And rather than their 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 field of study, and he was saying that if they don't sign off these, and they're basically becoming sort of loyal, they're becoming basically loyalty oaths. And he said that 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 is already skewing the, from the get go the professorship, the professoriate, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm too, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but it just seems like if you can't even get your foot in the door, you if you have to. If you have to hide what you believe, I mean, we saw recently that that some of the Trump appointees to the Justice Department they had written, you know, op eds as, as undergraduates, Naomi Naomi Rao and that kind of thing, and Ryan Pound, I believe that they, they that that just almost cost it did cost Pound his I believe it was his his name was Ryan Pound that he to as assert a, a judgeship and so forth. And what do you say to students? That, well, did they say, well, I I just don't feel comfortable writing that. And, and we just saw, I mean, just recently there was a study by FIRE about that, about their, their self-censoring and so forth. Yeah, well, yeah, I, th- I think there, a lot of self-censorship does, does go on. Um, so so let, let me take up a few parts of this question. Um, the first one is I want to go just a little bit pre-Trump, although I, I think something might have changed post, but, but, you know, it's still, you know, it's early days in a way, right? I mean, we're only so many years um, into that particular conflict, so it's hard to say precisely what effect it's going to have. But, um, you know, I, I mean, Passing on the Right, that was a book about mm. um, conservatives in the academy that came out um, in, um, I want to say 2016 or 2017. Um, so not a cool time in our politics, but and presumably I started writing it earlier than whenever it came out. Um, but, but not yet, right? The, <laughs> what, what we faced, you know, really, I, I'm, I'm sure their data must have preceded 2016 and what we faced, um, right after 2016, but let's start at least with pre 2016. Um, and, uh, they surveyed, you know, it was not a representative sample. They didn't claim it was, but they sampled, they surveyed a number of self-identified conservative professors. Um, and they also interviewed them, um, you know, to, to get a more in-depth idea of the kinds of things they were thinking. Um, but one of the things that really surprised me is that although a number of them did hide what they thought um, pre-tenure, it was surprising how many of them didn't. I, I forget the exact percentages, um, especially when you consider, you know, what assistant professors are like. I mean, they're really inclined to hide every any, anything. You know, they're really careful. 
um, in my experience, because, you know, one of the unfortunate things about the way the tenure system works, although um, I'm not sure there's any better way it could work, is that, you know, you have this make or break decision, you know, six years into um, your tenure at a place, it's going to decide basically whether you get to continue your career or not. So, um, faculty members tend to be hyper-cautious in general. I'm sure they're more cautious when they're conservatives. But like I said, um, they didn't find quite as much of that as I would have expected. I would have imagined a much higher number, actually, than they found uh, based on the way um, I think of this as working. But one thing that really has changed um, in the course of my career uh, to get to the point about diversity statements is um, the, the institutionalization of a view that was certainly present um, when I was in college um, and uh, when I started my career, but is, is baked into almost every college university now. Um, and that is these, these offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion mm. right, that you now find at almost every um, uh, college university um, in the country. And, you know, I'll say in a, a minute why I, I think even there, um, it's not quite as hopeless as it might sometimes seem, but as part of, as you say, the diversity, equity, inclusion push, um, a lot of colleges and universities um, ask as part of your package when you apply for a job, and some even are asking it uh, for part of your package when you come up for promotion, is um, so, so how would you say um, that um, you are fostering diversity, equity, inclusion in the classroom? And uh, you know, it, it seems pretty clear when you read, you know, statements of advice, you know, in, in, a, in a trade journal like Inside Higher Ed, what should I write for this? It probably, it's not going to be good enough to write, well, I'll just treat everybody equally, right? Yeah. That's not what they have in mind. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and that's, I think, what leads people to um, suppose that it's going to function as a kind of loyalty oath. So, um, I'm worried about that, too. I'm, I'm worried about these statements. Um, and it's another area in which I, in which I wish, wish there was more, more pushback um, than we're seeing. I've written a little bit about it. Jeffrey Flyer um, from Harvard mm. has written some about it. Um, you know, I, I think in practice, you know, will they function as, as loyalty oaths? Um, I, I think, you know... It's going to vary a lot from from department to department. I think for most for the most part, um, what we're going to see is this this being you know one element that's considered among others. So, you know, I, I think probably if I write in my diversity statement that, um, uh, for example, uh, I, I don't have to you know, write one to come promotion here. In any case, I've come to the end of my promotion, but suppose I mm -hmm. have to write one. Um, if I wrote, you know, for example, well, you know, I've worked with the Hillel on campus and um, I've done programming about matters of Jewish social and, you know, cultural and political interest um, while I've been here, you know, I, I don't think I'd, I'd be sunk because I, I didn't at the same time quote various um, um, left-wing nostrums in my statement. Mm. Um, so, so, so it seems to me that, you know, again, it might work that way. I don't think that we should have them, um, but I, th I think that it, it's not disastrous, right? That is to say, that in, in, in the way uh, that you just described, that they are loyalty oaths. I think there, there's a lot of danger that they could function 
um, in that manner. The, the last thing I want to say about those offices, though, is that, um, you know, I, I think it's important when we, when we, that we think about what's going on locally um, at our colleges and universities and make sure that, um, especially, you know, when we're in, on the inside, when, we're, you know, when you're a faculty member um, at a university, not, not to read your campus um, in terms of, you know, what you're hearing about campuses and the national media. Um, it is worth trying to get to know the people who are in these offices. Um, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily the case that if you if you go in there, they've got a guillotine in there and they're going to throw <laughs> you in there um, or something like that. I mean, I've worked with our Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Um, so um, they, they co-sponsor and help get students to a debate that I um, uh, helped arrange um, on free speech on campus, which included um, Nadine Strassen, who's one of our foremost, mm. um, I think, free speech advocates in the country, as well as Jeremy Waldron, who um, does argue in favor of European style hate codes. Um, I've enlisted um, the Office of Diversity of Equity and Inclusion um, to help sometimes um, with programming that I've done on, um, on anti-Semitism. Um, so, so those offices, I think, are are, are sometimes um, at least mindful that universities, you know, um, approach things in, in in a certain manner, and um, so so I think I think that's important too. I mean, one of one problem that um, I don't know if you've looked at his work at all. Um, Sam Abrams um, is a political scientist who writes a lot about campus issues. I've heard his name, but I haven't. Well, one of the things he, he notes, you, you, you should look him up after this, because he, he was put through a harrowing experience, actually, at Sarah Lawrence, um, where he teaches. Oh, but, well, that's um, right. The, he, his, his door was vandalized and that kind yeah. of thing. Yet he remains fairly optimistic about higher education, interestingly. I mean, he, he doesn't pull any punches, but he remains optimistic in a lot of ways. But one of the things he points out is that... Um, you know, he, as far as he can tell, you know, he, he ran a survey looking at student-facing administrators, you know, the kinds of people you might find in your housing office. Um, I assume the kinds of people you might find in, um, in your, uh, probably in your diversity, equity, and inclusion office. But, you know, the administrators who deal with students most, the student-facing ones, not college presidents, but, but really um, folks like the ones I, I just mentioned who might be running trainings in the dorms, that kind of thing. And what he found was they're really considerably more liberal than faculty members who are already quite liberal, mm. right? And, and yet they're, they're doing, you know, educational programming, right? at yeah. least in, in the dormitories, um, um, without some of the same sort of built-in, you might say, professional safeguards that faculty um, often operate under, even if they are, you know, sort of in the outside world, um, extreme partisans. So... Yeah, there's um, no there's no oversight. They have a disproportionate. It seems to me they have a disproportionate amount of power with very little oversight. That they're set these standards of. I looked at, for example, bias response teams that they're sending out students to, you know, to be basically to as little Stasi members in some ways. I, I mean, there's no other way to think of it. It's, you're you you are out of you're, you. This professor, I will report you, and I report my fellow students and. And and it just seems to, just to be this prosecutor, prosecutorial mindset, but but it's, but I'm glad to know that what you say about the the diversity and inclusion offices, equity inclusion offices, are are, are open minded. But it does sound like well, some. What I want to come come back to that? I wouldn't say that. I don't know that they're all open minded. I'm talking about oh. <laughs> my, my, my my experience with with my own office. But but you know, I also deal with a lot of student facing. Um, um, 
administration folks, and you know, I, I assume that they, um, you know, uh, that that most of them were probably, uh, you know, to the left of me. I, I, I assume that's the case, but. You know, I, I think a lot of times, you know, in spite of the sort of long march through the institutions language we often use in the right, administrators are quite often drawn to universities. So they like universities, right? Not, not just because they're, they're places where activism is happening, but because they, they have some attachment, right, yeah, to the right. inquiring spirit of universities. So I think lots of these people are more immovable than they might seem to be. Um, just w- w- when you think about, you know, sort of in a way what they're up to in the abstract. Um, so I think even there, there might be more room for movement than one, one might hope. Um, mm. But they also are only one neighborhood, you might say, um, in the university, just like DEI statements are only one element of, of, of an academic application. So, you know, it, it's. Uh, I don't want to deny, and I, I know if you, you read my book and I, I heard your promo for it, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm aware of these trends. I've written a lot about them. And I'm very worried about them. Hmm. Um, I, I just think that there's more, more, more scope, uh, more hope, uh, more possibility um, for reform. I mean, in a way, if you think of student-facing uh, administrators a, a, as a major problem, as I think lots of folks do, Right. That's a more remediable problem than most. Right. It's much harder to deal with with with, with tenured professors, you might say, um, than student facing administrators where, you know, if you're a college president, you're their boss. Right? And you can have a big footprint on how things go. Right. As far as the way your student facing administrators are acting in residence halls and what they're they're conveying. So in a way, there is a lot um, that um, a, a college president or dean or, or high-level administrative official with a strong sense, right, of the idea that what we're looking to do at colleges and universities is somehow shape um, reasonable people um, and, and pursue um, questions in a more or less um, nonpartisan spirit, there's a lot they can do about this issue of student-facing administrators. Well, apropos of, of creating an atmosphere, you mentioned in the book, uh, Robert P. George is uh, James Madison program at James Madison program of American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton, and the fact that he, he he's helped create a center or program that's a model for others of trying to in, in, trying to create a part a nonpartisan atmosphere where everybody can engage in truth seeking, and that. And you make the point that he says, and you agreed with him, and you've done this in your own life, in your book, in your book, you talk about it, that as few as five professors on a campus can make make a a real impact if they simply say, we're not going to judge you students by your political views. We're going to just engage in intellectual endeavor together in a thoughtful and civil manner. And I thought that was fascinating that five professors isn't very many, but they have a disproportionate impact, apparently. Yeah, well, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, the, the way colleges and universities work, I think, is that, you know, most of us are, are here um, in a lot of ways uh, to sort of be in our cubby holes and <laughs> conduct mm-hmm. research. And, uh, you know, many of us like being in the classroom, but we're not really there um, for the most part to program build, to engage in politics, um, to run departments, um, that kind of thing. And so, you know, I remember being told by one of my mentors that at least in the particular department he was in that that really anybody who cared could have a considerable influence because you know most people and you know are um, 
are, uh, you know, they, they don't worry too much in a way about, um, about what's happening and that they, they can be moved um, by, by argument if something sounds, um, sounds pretty good. Um, at, at Ursinus, we have a program called the Common Intellectual Experience. Um, you know, at the backbone of it is questions, right? We're emphatic that, that we're dealing with questions precisely in order to have, you know, you might say um, a speed bump right there if you're thinking that the ideas were going to jam something down somebody's throat, right? The course is, is about uh, fundamental questions. What, what should matter to me? How should we live together? Uh, how can we understand the world? Um, th- those sorts of, um, of questions. That program, you know, you, you had to get a faculty to vote for it. I, I wasn't here when it happened, um, but I think it was a close vote, actually. But um, it was probably a core of around five professors who began to get that started and then did the work of persuading um, other people. Um, it, it's unpleasant work. I mean, the way the kind of work I mostly do um, which is firing off op-eds, um, that, that, that feels pretty good. But, but really, at most colleges and universities, the, the, the work is, um, you know, it's, it's retail politics, finding a, a sympathetic administrator, um, finding colleagues, getting some to um, raise their voices. I mean, th- th- there are a lot of folks, I'd say, who, who are sitting, um, you know, at least with respect to the way colleges and universities function, um, as opposed to their politics, um, you know, somewhere in the middle, that is to say, they may be kind of concerned about some of the things that are going on that, that we've talked about already, but they're, they're not necessarily moved um, to act. Maybe they don't know that anybody else, <laughs> you know, has the same concerns because it's not much talked about, or um, maybe they're having trouble articulating um, what the alternative position is, right, what they could say. Um, instead in a compelling manner. And um, so, you know, if you've got a few people who, you know, can make that case, um, um, are concerned about it, or willing to talk about it in such a way that other people notice, oh, there are other people who are concerned about that too, um, then it seems to me that you can get uh, things done quite often. I mean, you're definitely not going to win every battle. Um, but I do think that it's best to think about it. I mean, if you think about it nationally, it, it begins to get really demoralizing because it's very hard to figure out how to affect a system that's as vast as the American higher education system mm-hmm. is. But if you think about it in a neighborhood by neighborhood way, you know, my department, my division, this program that I'm setting up, this element of the Common Core, this college, which can become a model for other colleges, as Robert George's program has been a model for lots mm-hmm. of other places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- th- then then you can get somewhere. Um, you know, Robert George, um, you know, what he's managed to do at Princeton um, is impressive. And although, you know, his, his watchword is indeed, you know, let's let's have a discussion, you know, in a sense, let's be reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, right, I mean, his, his program has also been a way in which students can meet, get in touch with, um, uh, you know, uh, folks he brings in, speakers, fellows, and so on, who, who are conservative. And um, so it, it's, it's, a, it's not, you know, sometimes we think of the idea of let's be reasonable. I think sometimes it is, right, as a kind of Trojan horse, which you really mean is shut up, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the, you know and you mean shut up to those um, who you assume are unreasonable because, um, you know, they're, they're on the other side. Um, but... Um, yeah, it's kind of like they, I believe in science is sort of saying, well, 
doesn't everybody <laughs> just right, exactly <laughs> shut up right yeah. it's, 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 it's what you mean by, by by that as well quite often and mm-hmm. you know i i think you know to to um you know widen the lens a little bit um i i think that this is one way in which conservatives and liberals engage in this debate mirror each other quite often in a way i find troubling you know, go all the way back to um, Plato's Republic, which is which is a book I teach, pretty you know pretty regularly, though though. <laughs> don't ask me anything about anything that happens after book seven because I don't make it through the whole book ever. But um, the um, you know in that um, dialogue, you know, very early on, um, a guy named Thrasymachus raises. Um, an objection to the idea of justice. And he says, justice is the advantage of the stronger. And, you know, what he means by that um, is that what goes by the name of justice is actually, you know, it's something powerful people say um, in order to maintain their power, right? So it's, it's a means of basically, you know, fooling people um, into agreeing to whatever the powerful say, right? Um, and, you know, I, I think in a way... That's pretty powerful. In other words, that that's quite often sort of the way it looks, right? I mean, people are saying a lot of things about what's just, what's rational, and so on. And oftentimes, when, when you look behind it, what it basically means is shut up, mm. right? Again, um, but but quite often the response is, is something effective. Well, okay, well, if, if that's true, what we have to do is, right, these folks are in power right now. We have to get them out of power and grab our own power so we can impose our own view of justice in roughly the same way that they're imposing theirs, right? Um, but, you know, in the Republic, you, you have this alternative, right, namely Socrates, right, who um, inaugurated... Um, you know, in, in the West and has had influence beyond the West, of course, um, um, a tradition of, um, of inquiry, mm. you know, and, and understanding that, um, that indeed uh, people disagree about justice. Indeed, it's the case that quite often when people are talking about justice, they don't know what they're talking about or seeking to exercise power. But the response to that, since we desperately want to know what, 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 what justice is, which I think is something people do desperately want to know, um, is to recognize uh, what we don't know, that we don't know, and, and, and undertake an inquiry. Now, that's not always going to work in politics where, you know, very <laughs> big problems ensue when the people you disagree with take power <laughs> quite often. But, but, but the academy, right, if there's any home for something like Socratic inquiry, Right um, in our uh, universe of institutions, it's colleges and universities, and so you know, it seems to me that this is you know, if anywhere, where um, the attempt to establish some alternative to the idea that there is no reason, there is no justice, right? There's just power. Um, this is a place where we have to. Um, fight that notion. And that means the way of fighting back can't be, let's destroy it and seize power ourselves, um, but has to be um, a defense um, of something like Socratic inquiry. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with Jonathan Marks about his book, Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. 
And after, continuing with the, the topic of power, I just I was mentioning to you in an email before the interview that there's been a, a big Wall Street Journal article about the fact, I believe the Wall Street Journal of a, of a study or just the declining numbers of men in college and something like roughly 60, 40, 40% men and 60% women. And that does skew power in 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 the future radically if 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 men are not in college they're not becoming lawyers or not becoming business or accountants or not becoming pharmacists or not becoming um university professors have you seen a decline in in male enrollment at, at Uranus and and how do you how do you and are liberal arts to blame for this in a way i mean there's the, there's been an increasing feminization of, of liberal arts in a way that people there's they seem to be less, I guess, less macho in a way. I mean, even though, and also, there's also the problem of if if you say, well, we're going to study the old books, and the, then the left would say, well, that's the classic dead white male. I mean, Hume and Aristotle and Plato and John Stuart Mill, they're all dead white males, and that's the Western supremacist. So we don't even listen to that argument. Do you, do you, how, do you, how do you counter this, this, the fact, I mean, are young men just getting turned off education because they think, well, they just kind of go the Jordan Peterson route and say, this is just, everything is skewed against us. Thanks. Yeah, that, that was an, interest, an interesting article by, um, I, I want to say, Doug Belkin, who, who writes a lot about education for um, the Wall Street Journal. I hope I got his first name right. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I'll start with, with Ursinus. Um um, so, so we're about 50-50, but, but that's, I think, pretty unusual, as, as Belkin was pointing out. Um, it, it's really remarkable, right, that, um, that the skew we're looking at is, is, is just about what you said. It's getting pretty close to 60-40 female male in, um, in, in college enrollments. Um, and uh, you got to figure that, that downstream, as you say, that, that that's going to have effects on, on who ends up. Um, in professional school, um, I'm sure that there's going to be a lag, right? I mean, women became a majority in colleges and universities around 1978. Oh, is that um, right? So, as early so as that. quite a long time ago, mm -hmm. um, though just by a hair. I mean, it's it, it's much it's much more pronounced um, right now um, than it was then, um, and it took about 40 years or so for that to feed into professional schools. So I think. Women are, are now a narrow majority at law schools um, and professional schools. So it took a while. Mm. Um, let, let's put it that way. Um, so let me, uh, I guess, answer directly your first question. And, and then, if you don't mind, um, go back to something I think uh, that I think my, my book might help a little with. Absolutely. Um, it's, not, it's not something I deal with really in the book, but I don't think that it's the liberal arts. Um, and the reason I don't think that it's the liberal arts is that this is really an across-the-board problem. Mm -hmm. um, liberal arts education is not, you might say, a practice at the majority of our colleges and universities. And, you know, it, it, you can go study business and barely encounter um, a course in the, um, in, in the liberal arts or go study engineering and barely encounter a course um, in the liberal arts or study pre-health and barely encounter a course um, in the liberal arts. Hmm. Um, you know, I think the skew is, is a bit more female at, at liberal arts colleges than it is across the country, but uh, most of the drop in the past few years have been men not going to community college. 
Oh, is that right? That's interesting, because I would have thought that they would be hanging on there, especially because those are trades that they often t- study welding and carpentry. And of course, a lot of them are service jobs, restaurants and so forth, but but they also are nursing. So, hmm, that's yeah, so, 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 it, so, yeah, it's mostly been in the past few years there. Hmm. Um, very big drop in community colleges. In fact, there's been a big drop in general in colleges and university, uh, rather community colleges, men and women. And that's too bad because um, that's, 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 the, that's the gateway to the two universities later later on. Yeah, I was surprised by it. You know, it's often the case that in bad economic times, community colleges do pretty well. So I'm not really sure um, why we're seeing this drop. But um, that, that we're not really sure part is, is, the, is, is a part I want to go ahead and emphasize a little bit, because I think, you know, one of the things I try to note in my book is, um, you know, there's an enormous amount that we don't know. <laughs> yeah, you make um, an interesting point about this, this, this strange, this student, and we don't know what is going on in her head, or what is, what is he thinking, or what are, the, what are these great co- cohorts of, of generational generational cohorts believe? And I thought that, I, I think one thing I thought was heartening about your book was that you say you, you're critical of, of uh, um, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lugianoff. Is that? Uh, I think that's right. Yeah, of uh, of their the the fi- the fire their their institution. They're, that you you at least as I as I read you, you you think that they're they're too pessimistic. They're too they're too apt to to just throw up their hands and say, oh, these this 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 intolerant generation. You're saying I have, I don't find that in my classroom. That they're usually pretty good, likable kids that try to try to do the right thing and. Yeah, I, I, I do think that the um, that, that that the two of them, I think they're they're, they're not quite right about um, not quite right about generations. Although I think in a way they're they're pretty optimistic they're, they're, that something can be done, mm. um, but they're they're deeply worried about the, this particular generation. And I, I actually think Coddling of the American Mind is one wonderful book, um, but I do have some issues about about that generational thinking. But you know, so, so there's a lot we don't know. I, I don't think we know um, why men aren't going to college um, in the numbers they used to, or at least the percentages that they used to. I mean, lots of men still, in absolute terms, still um, go to college. Um, I don't think we know why they're having a harder time in high school, which I think they are. I mean, certainly in terms of college entry, when you look at self-reported grades, uh, women seem to be getting A's and A pluses at higher rates, for example, than um than uh, guys are as, as they enter college and so on. Um, but, but I think that, um, you know, we've talked a little bit already in the interview about, um, you know, partisan bias at universities. And one thing actually John Hyde talks about is the way in which that, that, that can skew research, you know, because um, your political position all, often will influence even what questions you find interesting, what results you really focus on, which you view with skepticism, uh, let's focus on the research front for a moment, although I think it also affects teaching quite a bit. And, and you see this, I think, sometimes in research, um, you know, about um, uh, men and women or, or research about um, who's having a hard time in school. And I go, go back a long way just, just to give you an example um, of a study I came across a while back where what the researchers seem to be looking for was evidence that, um, you know, predominantly white teachers, I think this was in relatively early grades, would just not be very good um, at understanding, reading the emotions of of their non-white students. I I think this is what they suspected, Hmm. but I don't recall the details. 
and they came across sort of a surprising result. And the surprising result was actually the, the emotions that the teachers were the worst at reading were the emotions of white male kids, hmm. uh, which was odd. And, you know, one would like to see if it's going to be replicated in further studies. But instead of looking at that and saying, hmm, um, that's interesting. Let's see if we can follow up or ask another question. They just sort of found a way to try to fold that into their pre-existing understanding of things. Hmm. I forget exactly how they did it, but they were just incurious about the result. Similarly, a study came out um, just recently. I read about this maybe a couple of weeks ago. And it was a study of what happens when you include more female authors in your curriculum, right? Hmm. Um, what effect is that going to have when, when, when people see this? When, when you look at the curriculum, you see this. What effect is that going to have on your sense of your prospects of succeeding your, your self-efficacy, I think, is the term that they use. They use various questions, you know, to measure these things. And um, again, they found something pretty surprising. That is to say that um, they, they, they saw no effect on this, right? I think their expectation was that women would acquire a greater sense of self-efficacy. They found no effect in that regard at all. Um, they found, as I think they didn't expect to find, that the sense of efficacy of men and women in the class was about equal. Um, when they measured it, and they found that the the really variance you saw right between how people reacted to the curriculum is what they thought about diversity already. Hmm. Right. In other words, if they were all sort of really sensitized toward diversity, they looked at the curriculum and thought, "Well, that's great. I feel good about this." And if they weren't um, as sympathetic, right, to that idea, then you know they they, they weren't so. Uh, they didn't feel so great about it. In fact, they had less of a sense of self-efficacy. Um, that was the big difference. And again, what these researchers do is don't think, well, that's interesting. Let me ask another question. That's a surprising result. Uh, nor do they think, well, maybe the idea of, of including more female authors isn't the way of addressing the problem that I think I've got here. Instead, they said, well, since the variation seems to be on what people think about diversity, we really have to go back and educate students better on what to think about diversity. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think uh, speaking as a woman, who, former student, that when I was a child, that it wasn't forced on you. That I didn't think when I watched The Wizard of Oz, the film, well, this is an empowered female character. I just liked Dorothy. I didn't have to be told that. that, that or, and the same thing with with male authors. I think some of the most effective representations of women are Henry James and Leo Tolstoy. That that the, they created women, or the Anna Karenina is a full fledged female character and Henry James with, with uh, uh, Isabel Archer, the same kind of thing. It's just like, well, did Edith Wharton convince me more with her women than Henry James did? It just seems this, this ridiculous, no, you have to go by the, and, and, and also too, and now it's the fact that, well, they, it, it, you can't even press female authors now because there's this whole, well, you know, that's not, that's the transgender people object because they don't, that women are not acceptable <laughs> It just gets so it just gets just feeds on itself to a ridiculous extent. Yeah, and so my argument would be, and and, and this you know, does have to do with a book that, um, you know, I I don't know how to resolve, you know, the problem that um, that um, that that you describe, and I think I think downstream it could be a problem. You know, I wouldn't worry too much. You know, if, if it stayed at, at forty sixty, maybe that's okay. But if it continued to get worse. Um, that would worry me as, as any sort of imbalance of that kind, you know, reverse to um, it would worry me. But um, 
you know, I, I think it's hard to get to the bottom of a problem like that um, if you can't even see it. Yeah, or when you do it. see it, you're not inclined to follow up on it. Um, you're, you're inclined to maybe dismiss it. Maybe I better run the study another time because this result seems strange or something like that. So um, that's one reason that, you know, college universities, again, need, need to be defended against the attempt to, um, you know, so, sometimes it's it's deliberate and sometimes just happens, you might say, by virtue of drift, you know, who's coming to universities. But th- th- this movement um, of universities in a more um, political and lopsided um, direction. I think it affects, you know, what we're able to see really well. Um, and one of those things might be um, uh, what it is that's making it difficult for um, for men to succeed. Um, I think back back in high school, but I really don't think that's the liberal arts, that, that that's a primary issue there, because I think it's an across the board problem um, in higher education right now. Hmm. It's it's sad that it, it that it that it does it becomes it becomes a problem years after it should have been recognized and it, and even then people say well they're just complaining I mean you're complaining now that women are actually advancing that that how can that they're just they're just men are just whining and so forth. Anyway. Well, that's right. I, I mean, there's this desire to 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 read you know. So I think that's right when you see an article that says, well, it looks like, you know, 40% of males now, you know, and 60% of females, you know, I think the antennae, you might say, mm. right, of so many left goes back and says, well, I don't, I don't want this to, I don't want to spend too much time on this, because that, that sounds like backlash to me, right? Mm. It's all viewed politically, right? Even if you're just presenting, I and mean, this is really just information, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and obviously there's a spin on it, but, um, you know, if you respond to it politically, like- this is bad for my side because it's backlash. That's that's not really going to get us anywhere. I do think, though, uh, hope that um, that um, you know, colleges and universities, you know, they're not, you know, simply, you know, not even I think primarily, you know, bastions of left wingism. I think that that's not true. Um, that they're looking to, you know, fill their seats. They're looking to continue to be ongoing enterprises. And I do think Haydn Lukinoff talked about this a bit in their book too, but at some point or another there's going to be, you know, what you might call a business case for, for reasonableness. And there's also going to be a business case for figuring out what's going on um, with men because universities need to, you know, get people you know, yeah, to, that's right. to come to their places. And I, I think that I'm sure there, there are deans and presidents looking around right now and looking at the way the bottom dropped out in terms of Republican confidence in colleges and universities, maybe four or five years ago and thinking, you know, that that's half the country. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and sons. we better find a way to, 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 um, um, not, um, back up through our actions the uh, the the nastiest accusations that are made against us. Do you think there might be a, a, a resurgence of single sex education? I was thinking about that uh, this morning, and um, I guess I don't think so, just because mm-hmm. I think there's there's not a lot of appetite out there for it. You know, I actually, by accident, I hadn't even asked for it, um, was placed in a single-sex dorm my first year of college. And to give you an idea of how far back this kind of thing goes, I mean, this was a long time ago. I think I entered college 
1987, the administration decides they were going to break up almost all single-sex housing. And the argument was really explicit. I'm sorry, you people need to be socialized. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that was the argument they made. I mean, I, I liked single-sex housing housing a lot. I mean, I liked co-ed housing just fine. I mean, I don't think the change, you know, ruined my experience. But there is a lot to be said for um, single-sex housing, single-sex programs, um, pluses and minuses to fraternal and sorority life, but clear pluses. Um, so um, I don't know if we'll see a resurgence again, because I don't know if there's a big market for it, so to speak. I'm talking about the, the business cases as a... Uh, um, as I was putting it before, um, but you know there might be an opening for it. Yeah, uh, on on that as we approach the close of the interview, I wonder if you could make the the business case for for reasonableness to say to to say to a parent, well, your child, it, it, it's important for him or her to just be they'll they'll, they'll function better in life if they if they can control their temper and be rational thinking people. It doesn't even. It doesn't. And you make the point that it doesn't even have to be the humanities rule of arts. It's liberal, liberal education. Which yeah, there, there, there are a lot of marvelous. Uh, well, I could think of, of one off the top. We have a marvelous program called the Herbs Program, and the humanities. Um, I think it's at the uh, University of Colorado, uh, Boulder, maybe, um, which is entirely consists of, of engineers who, you know, I think they opt into it, um, but um, but but who, uh, you know. Um, uh, pursue um, questions that uh, you know, engineers do sort of need to be thinking about, right? They're building things for um, human beings, um, helping them think a little bit about the history of their discipline, the place place it occupies um, in the world, and so on. And you know, it does seem to me these are useful things for engineers to to think about. But but coming back to the direct question you asked me, I mean, my, my model in a lot of ways I mentioned a lot, but another hero of my book is Benjamin Franklin. Mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, Benjamin Franklin um, forms a club called the uh, Junto, um, which is at one and the same time a club in which natural philosophy and other you know, political moral questions are discussed. They actually write essays, read them to each other, um, pursue what you might call the life of the mind. But it's also a society for um, improvement of one's prospects, you might say, mm. um, in, in business and of gaining eventually uh, more influence um, in politics, and and Franklin thinks these things go together pretty well. And you know, I, I think, in a way, you know, it's not a hard case to make at all. It's hard to get people to believe it somehow. But I think, but most people, um, you know, I, I encounter whether are sympathetic to um, the liberal arts or not, recognize that um, that in any profession, it's a good idea to be able to to take a step back, you know. Um, from, you know, being in the midst of your moment, um, take a step back, reflect on it, um, consider alternative views, right? In a way, it's a cliche, right? It's become a cliche. Good to think outside the box, right? Um, it's a cliche with which we're, um, we're all familiar. I, I think the problem is less that people don't buy that, that they don't buy Locke's case that cultivating the understanding is cultivating the thing you need, right, to do really practical stuff. It's more that they don't really believe that that's going on Mm. um, in liberal arts education. Yeah, and so I I think that that's up to us in a lot of ways um, to make the case that it's going on and, you know, actually to do it. 
Um, so, so I think to some extent, well, I'm not going to say it's, a, it's all a communications problem or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I do think that, that we have some work internally to be more, you know, to, to think better ourselves about what we're doing as educators um, in the liberal arts and try to uh, uh, make what, what really is j- just an argument, you might say, that you see taking place, you know, more or less in this classroom, in that classroom, in this institution, the other institution, um, into a, a, a more coherent uh, way of pursuing liberal education um, in such a way that you can actually make it visible to a parent and say, see, you know, this is what we're doing. Sit on a class. This is what's going on, right? It actually has to be going on um, in order to be able to make that case. And I think that it, it does go on, but um, um, we're not as focused on it um, as, um, as it seems to me uh, we need to be. We, we have a lot of balls in the air, so to speak. And, um, you know, in a way, reason, you know, if, if it makes the list at all as anything other than, than critical thinking, a uh, term I don't love, but at least it's a, it kind of fits the place uh, where, where the word reason would normally occupy it. You know, it's on a list, right, of 10 different institutional priorities. Mm. College University is now very fond of putting out, um, um, what are they calling them, core value statements. So this is something beyond a regular admission statement where you sort of list the priorities that you're seeking as a community. And usually, you know, things that you might think of as connected to reasonableness, you know, it, it's one in, you know, 10 unranked things, you know, that we're all sort of doing. Um, so I think we need a lot more, um, a lot more focus, um, you might say, and um, that's not going to be achieved across the board. But as I said earlier, you want to, uh, you know, start uh, with your institution or your department or your uh, program. And certainly if you're an outsider, you're looking to find uh, programs who are doing that and try to to support them. Um, mm-hmm. There is. Robert George's program is just one piece of um, good news, good stuff that's going on um, in higher education. And uh, that can be replicated from the inside and supported from the outside. Well, I, I, I strongly endorse your belief that universities matter because if you don't have universities that are open, that, that if conservatives give up on them, then they're giving up on appointees to the Supreme Court. They're giving up on senators or giving up on having any impact at all. So uh, now at the front, the front, it's traditional on the, the new books network, Jonathan, to ask the question, the final question, what are you working on now? Well, um, you know, I, I just finished the book in a way. So I'm mostly out um, talking about the book. Um, so I, I don't have any grand new project in the works. I'm actually teaching a new course um, on campus free speech. So I spent the, the last summer or so um, developing that class. That's something I've, I've never done as a four credit course before. I'm also doing some, some writing on matters related to the book that I didn't get to um, in the book. So I wrote a piece recently uh, which which I hope people will read um, for um, the Constitutionalist called What Universities Owe, um, which is about um, how universities can do something like um, civic education um, without becoming um, uh, instruments of, um, of, of those who wish to mobilize students for this purpose or that. Um, so that's what universities owe in the uh, Constitutionalist. 
Well, very good. Well, thank you very much. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Jonathan Marks. We've been talking, discussing his book, Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you, Hope.